That's a tiny little book that comes after a very big book, right after Jeremiah, tucked in the end is Lamentations. And chapter 3, verse 27. Lamentations 3, 27 says this, It is good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. And then um, Matthew 11, please, Matthew 11, you can keep your finger in Lamentations. We'll go back there in a minute. Matthew 11, verse 28 and 29. Jesus says this, Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy, my burden is light. I want to focus this evening on on really this idea of taking the yoke of the Lord Jesus upon you and doing it in your youth. Now, some of us are kind of past that, but we can still learn from it. Uh, and uh, some of the great hindrances to do the will of God, some of them can be educational and cultural. What do I mean by that? I want to think uh, this evening about uh, a word called adolescence. Anybody ever heard that word before? Okay. If you were um, living... In the 1700s, you would have not heard that word before, adolescence. If you were living in the 1800s, you would not have heard the word adolescence before. In fact, it came in in the 1900s. And it has had a huge effect on our society and our culture. So what do we mean by adolescence? Uh, the de- dictionary says this, it's this stage between childhood and manhood. So you're, you're really not quite a man, and you're kind of not a child anymore. You're kind of this in-between floaty thing between the two. Okay? And uh, it says it's a stage between childhood and manhood, one often viewed as a strange and difficult period, marked by mood swings, outbursts of temper, rudeness, rebelliousness, and involuntary personality changes. Okay, that sounds like a pretty serious affliction, doesn't it? To be an adolescent. And so because of this, the accepted thinking of the day is you have to wait until this traumatic period is over before you can actually do anything for God. Right? That's the mentality. That's what the culture says, right? Uh, Now, where does that come from? It comes from psychology, okay? I'm not a fan of psychology. I think a lot of it is bunkum. I mean, just uh, to be honest, uh, just uh, rubbish, uh, another way of putting it. Uh, But this came from a man called G. Stanley Hall, who was a professor at John Hopkins University, And he studied in Germany in 1904. He published his work titled Adolescence, 
its psychology and its relation to physiology, anthropology, sociology, sex, crime, religion, and education. And foisted on the world was this idea of adolescence. Prior to 1904, nobody knew anything about it. How did that work practically? How that worked practically was that throughout all previous centuries of Christianity and Judaism before it, when a person reached the age of 12, they were considered to be a man. Right? If you're a Jew, when you're 12, you have your bar mitzvah. I have a song uh, on my phone that I like to listen to. It's by a group called, I think they were called Liberated Wailing Wall. It was a Jews for Jesus kind of thing. It's showing my age back in the whatever era that was. And it's a song about a kid getting his bar mitzvah. mitzvah, And uh, he says, today I've become a man. I'd love to come out and play, but I can't anymore because today I became a man. And the idea was when you were 12, You became a man. You took your place at the synagogue. You would begin to read. Jesus, when he went up to the temple, would have taken the scroll at 12 and took his place in the synagogue and done the readings. Right? In the Christian uh, religion, I'm not saying it was scriptural, but you were baptized as a baby in Catholicism, and then after that, after the Reformation, they were still doing that. They hadn't got the light of believer's baptism yet for the most part. But when you were 12, you were confirmed. Right? You ever heard of that confirmation? And it was exactly the same idea as the Jewish bar mitzvah. What it meant was you had become a man. And you were expected to act like one at 12. And that has been uh, basically the way it was. In fact, it it worked out very practically. Uh, Boys in New England whaling towns went to sea. Often by the age of 16, they became masters of clippers. Hard for us to imagine that anymore, right? But that was the way it was. Henry Blackaby, in his book on leadership, says this, that 12 is the ideal time to start training leaders before they develop any bad habits. That's interesting, huh? All I'm trying to say is that maybe one of the great hindrances to doing the will of God is that we're so affected by psychology that we no longer think biblically anymore. And I think psychology has affected a lot of our thinking. In, in so, many other, so many other areas, even in the area of sin, a lot of stuff is excused now or even applauded. Sin has been redefined. Now, for instance, covetousness, the Bible really clearly calls it sin, but nowadays it's called retail therapy and it's good for you, right? Go to the mall, you know, have a day in the mall and kind of get all your angst out by doing some shopping on stuff you don't really need, right? Retail therapy. That's psychology. It's nonsense, right? And we could go on and on. My my whole point tonight is not to bash psychology, but just to show us that often we're hindered from doing the will of God because we're more affected by the culture and error in the culture than we even realize. 
So I think about the early days of the assembly history. I'm talking back in 1820s when there was a rediscovery of New Testament principle. The first breaking of bread, 1826, um, those that were there, Lord Congleton, Jesse Parnell, he was 21. The oldest person there was Groves, he was 31. Uh, Darby, 26 at the time. Uh, Edward Cronin was 25. W.J. Stokes was 19. It was kind of a youth movement, really. These people became the world's leading experts in Bible prophecy in their early 30s. Interesting. Like in our culture, you're not fit to do anything until you're 30. We're missing the boat. You see, I don't know if you realize, but if you're 35... You're half done. Sorry, brother. You're you're not young anymore. You're middle-aged, right? I mean, if the Bible is true, three score years and ten, right? At 70, when I went to school, half of 70 is 35. You're middle-aged, right? If by reason of strength, four score, 80, right? Like, I'm finished. I'm 60. It's all over for me, really, right? I'm really glad. I didn't get saved till I was 20, so I'm a late bloomer. Right? Twenties late blooming. Eight years were missed. Right? Completely wasted. Winning continents for Christ. Hudson Taylor, 16 years of age, laid down prostrate on the ground, presented his body a living sacrifice. Did exactly what our brother just been talking about from Romans 12, 1 and 2. At 21, he hit the shores of China. 21 years of age, I was in China, and the the Christians there, one of their heroes to this day is Hudson Taylor. Isn't that amazing? A man impacting a continent for Jesus Christ, at 16, he does the dedication, 21, he hits the shores of China. I could go on. T. Ernest Wilson, 21 years of age, commended to the work of the Lord in Angola. Goes to Angola, no assemblies by the time he comes back, 1,500 assemblies. Amazing work for God. C.H. Spurgeon, first pastor at 16 years of age, preaching to multitudes at 21 years of age. Fred Stanley Arnott hits the shores of Africa at 21. And we're talking church history, let's talk about Bible. Samuel the prophet called of God as a teenager. David slaying Goliath. Remember... Saul wants to put the armor on. He says, you're nothing but a youth. You're nothing but a kid. But he slew a giant, right? Amazing. As a, and we could go on. Josiah, godly king Josiah, bringing revival to Israel. He's a kid. Uh, Jeremiah, just read it recently. Jeremiah 1.6. I can't. He's got excuses, right, for doing the will of God. One of them is, I'm a child. God called him. To be a prophet to Israel as a child. Isn't that amazing? So how does it affect us? Well, sadly, since the 60s, when psychology began to be mainstream thinking, now, sadly, we have kids raising kids. In other words, the adults never really grew up. They're still in this floaty period where they're really not much good for anything. And they're raising the next generation 
and we've got to get through all this mess and get back to the truth of God. And so I'm talking really to the young people here, but I'm talking to all of us, really. When do you start investing in a young person's life? Well, I'd say 12 is a good place to begin. I can't wait. When I finish in Florida, I'm going to Norway because i got four grandkids there. Number five is on the way. Can't wait. But one of them's eight. And I just can't wait to pour myself into the lives of those little grandkids, right? I can't wait. Looking forward to it, right? Because we've got to think about, they're the future. If the Lord be not come, that's the future. But if there's someone here tonight and you're, you're 12 and above, it's time to play the man. To bear the yoke for God in your youth. Take his yoke. You know what the yoke is, right? You get the idea, right? It's you know two oxen and they've got this yoke that, that puts them together. The Lord Jesus is in one and he says, you take my yoke on you. You take the other one. And you come and work with me and for me. That's the picture. And so maybe there's a young person tonight and it's time to grow up. Time to get serious. Time to roll your sleeves and be a man and take the, the, the yoke in your youth. Take your place, responsible place in the assembly and family and society. I, I don't like dumbing it down for kids because I think it's an insult to them. I really do. Some of them grappling with calculus and all this kind of stuff and then we give them tweedledee, tweedletum-like messages. Right? They can take it, right? What are we playing at? Let's give them the truth of God and not entertain them. Instruct them in righteousness. Timothy, young man, became a troubleshooter in the early church as a young man. Sent to solve problem assemblies. Isn't that amazing? As a young man. Think biblically. We've got to get back to this. Don't let anybody despise your youth. And so what does it look like for a young man, 12 and over? Well, let me just start with some pretty basic things. First of all, you've got to make sure you're saved. <laughs> That's pretty important, isn't it? Do you know that you know that you know that you know the Lord? That's important, right? Because everything else is irrelevant in a sense. You can't go beyond that. You've got to start right there. Has there been a time when you personally saw yourself as a sinner that needed a Savior and trusted in the finished work of the Lord Jesus for your salvation? If not, this would be a good place to begin. Having done that, the longest delay in the New Testament between somebody getting saved and getting baptized is three days. That was Saul of Tarsus. He was blind. He had a very reasonable excuse. Once he could see, immediately he was baptized. You've been saved more than three days, and you've never been baptized. It's time to get done. Get it over with. You're never going to take his yoke if you're not going to obey the first hurdle, which is believer's baptism, right? That's the first starting point. Right, a life of obedience of a disciple 
begins with baptism, publicly identifying with Christ in the death, burial, and resurrection. Very, very important truth. And then, if you're a young man, how old do you have to be before you start taking your responsibility as a believer priest at the Lord's Supper seriously? Remember my son James, he's serving the Lord in Norway, but he, I think he was probably 12 when he first started sharing at the Lord's Supper. He was behind me at the time, and I, 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 his voice hadn't broken yet, and I thought it was a woman sharing, and I was getting ready to go and do the business, and I realized my son. And he's been actively involved in the work of the Lord ever since. Praise the Lord for that, right? And we, we should be taking responsibility. It's time to grow up. Sharing your faith with others. Some of the principles that I think are very important as we think about these different individuals in Scripture, that, that what, what, can, what are some quick lessons, things that they can do, and what are some of the hindrances for a young person? We, we've talked a lot about hindrances to doing the will of God. I want to say this for, particularly for a young person in our culture, that if you can finally get over this psychological lie and recognize that at 12 you're responsible and you're a man and it's time to take your place, you're going to have two big issues that you're going to have to deal with. One is the entertainment trap. Now, it's not just kids. We're adults also spend way too much time on media of every type, every time. But for a young generation, it very much is a challenge, isn't it? Screen time. My, my son dealing with his, his own children, their biggest issue, even though one of them is only eight, screen time. Uh, in fact, interesting, a, a niece of ours, uh, she, she ha had a book uh, and... Uh, she, she was trying to get it to turn the page, but she's only been used to using screens, so she's doing this instead of turning the page. Because she's not used to it, right? That's our generation. But, but we, we have to say, we've got to deal with this issue of, of entertainment trap. Because um, somehow the, the culture says you've got to spend hours on that kind of stuff. And, and you know... It, one way to waste your life is to spend your life trying to get to the next level of whatever game you're on. Before you know where you are, your whole life is gone. And all you've done is got to the next level. And, got, and it's all designed to keep you in that rat trap, really, you know, of, of being in there the whole time. And before you know where you are, your opportunities to serve the Lord are gone. So that's a big thing for... for the person in those age ranges. The other one is the immorality trap. And I, I, I so appreciated what uh, our brother said. The Word of God says this, flee youthful lusts. Do exactly what Joseph did. Run as far away from that stuff as you possibly can. Because... Again, it will destroy you really quickly. And so these are things that we've, we've got to be honest about. But, but pursuing a life of dedication. Uh, maybe somebody here needs to do what Hudson Taylor did. Hudson Taylor was so overwhelmed 
when he thought about what God had done for him in Christ, he just felt it was an appropriate response to lay down on the ground and literally present his body a living sacrifice. Maybe some of you need to do that tonight. Say, Lord, I am going to deliberately, consciously present myself to you. And I am going to take my yoke in my youth. I'm going to do that. Uh, and that would be a great beginning. But what would it look like on a day-to-day basis? A daily quiet time with God is so important. I, I know you know this, and you've heard it before, but you're going to hear it again. Because I can't stress it enough that that, that daily quiet time, establishing the discipline of daily time in the Word of God and, and consecutively reading through the Scriptures. Get yourself a reading plan. Uh, if you need help with that, talk to me afterwards. I can tell you where you can download one for free and use it every single day. You will never regret it. I've been doing it since the day I got saved. I look back, I thank God. And every time I finish my reading plan, I can't wait to start it again because every time the Word of God is alive. It's like a new book and you read something and you say, how did I never see that before? I've read this passage 144 times and the 145th time something jumps out, hits you on the nose, you say, where did I miss that, Right? This is a living book. Get into the habit of that daily consecutive reading of the Word of God. Very, very important. And then read high-quality Christian literature. I said yesterday, I say it again, a reader is a leader. I think that's so important. And if you read, I love to read biographies of great missionaries, biographies of great evangelists, of great teachers, because it stirs me, it challenges me, it stops that complacency, that stagnancy that our brother was talking about, because it stirs you up, because you want to do more for the Lord. You're, you're thrilled and you read these stories, and, and you never tire of it. And then a disciplined prayer life. That's so important. Uh, spending time in prayer, uh, having things to pray for, uh, having a, a plan of how to pray for the world. It's, it's, it's interesting how easy it can be today to do something like that, but it's so, so critical. And, and it's interesting, um, one thing that I find is that when I pray for people, um, it's so fun when you meet them and say, hey brother, I've been praying for you, and you know you're not lying, you know? You really have been praying. In fact, I can show you, you're on my list, Right? That's, isn't that encouraging? It, and, but it's encouraging for you to, to see how the Lord is using that person and, and how he's using your prayers to impact their life. <clears throat> we said not being ashamed of the gospel. Carry tracks with you. I've been amazed. Every time uh, I get taken out to restaurants lots and lots of times with believers, and uh, I'm very thankful, but I've been amazed at how few actually carry tracks and some of them, probably they give such a small tip, it's probably just as well that they don't carry tracks, right? In other words, if you're going to carry, give a big tip and talk to the waitress. We were in a restaurant recently and uh, I, I said to the waitress, and we're going to pray, uh, is, there, is there anything that we can pray for you about? Well, she was there ages telling us all these different things, but she kept coming back to our table. She was really, you know, because we showed we care about people. 
and she didn't have any problem receiving a gospel tract afterwards, right? So, so being, be seeking to uh, uh, share your faith with others. Um, choosing friends carefully. Now, I've got to be careful how I say this, because there's two sides to what I'm going to say. One is um, making sure you, you, don't, you want to choose friends that are going to bring you closer to the Lord rather than pull you away from the Lord, right? Uh, your, your friendships are really very important. Uh, that's especially going to be true later on when you're choosing your life partner. Is this person going to make you fall more in love with Jesus Christ or pull you away from Jesus Christ? That's a big question to ask. But secondly, what about friends that don't know the Lord? If your friendship with them is with a view of winning them, that's a different story, right? Because sometimes we have no unsaved friends. Now, I don't want you to be influenced by unsaved friends, but sometimes it's good to have unsaved friends so that you can share Christ with them. So I want to try and give the balance, right? In other words, I don't want to be led astray by wrong friends, but I don't want to be so isolated that I don't know anybody who's not a Christian. Because that's cultic, right? We don't want that. The Lord didn't take us out of the world. He left us here to be a light to the world. So, so finding that balance is very important. And then getting involved in the life of the local church. Uh, I was recently um, in an assembly in Kladang in Malaysia. And I don't think I've ever been more impressed with a young people's group. Ever. We, uh, they asked me to go and speak to the old people. Obviously, they figured I looked the part or whatever. I don't know. I went to speak to the old people. But the young people were there with the old people. And they were there for a reason. They were there to do the music because the old people couldn't carry a tune in the bucket. So they were there to help them sing. But then afterwards, in Malaysia, they loved to eat. It's a foodie culture. So they had, they had food. But I noticed afterwards that the young people washed all the dishes, cleaned up all the mess, and they said, we would never let an uncle or auntie ever wash a dish. Now, did they just kind of think that way? No, the youth group, they trained them to serve. Wow, that's radical, isn't it? Instead of entertaining the youth, they trained them to serve. So they started by serving the old people, and, and in that assembly, no old person ever washes a dish. How would you like that? Would anybody want to sign up for that kind of a youth group? That would be amazing, right? And not only that, uh, there was one couple that couldn't be there that day because they'd been having some health issues, so we went around to visit them. And when we got there, there were already young people there helping clean their house. And I thought, wow, this is a different kind of young person. I'm not used to this, right? They were taught to be servants because they're followers of the perfect servant. Wow, that's a different mentality, isn't it? I think we could learn from some of these people. So think of things you could do. Visit the shut-ins. Anybody, any old person connected with the assembly that needs their grass mode? And any young person that could go around and do that, learn to be a servant. Keep a spiritual life journal. Right now, I've been reading the journals of Jim Elliot. 
absolutely soul-stirring. And I've been reading the journals of John Wesley and Charles Wesley. These people kept amazing spiritual journals. And it seemed like a lot of great men and women of God journaled. <laughs> That'd be a good thing to do, maybe. Keep a journal. What, what is the Lord speaking to you from the Word of God? Maybe keep a journal. What does the Lord speak to you about this weekend? Maybe some of the old folks could do that. Has God said anything to you this weekend? Make a note of it. Write it down. And then keep short accounts with God. Because... One thing that's very devastating, this, I'm going to close with this. I want you to turn to James chapter 1. And this is going to be our closing statement. James chapter 1, verse 15. It says, Then when lust is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's finished, brings forth Death. Now, I just want to focus on that last phrase. Sin, when it's finished, brings forth death. When you think about sin, I'll guarantee you never think about sin when it's finished. Nobody ever thinks about sin when it's finished. They always think about it at the beginning. Now, how does sin look at the beginning? Does it look good? Right? Let's just think of some examples. In the Garden of Eden, did the fruit look good? It did, right? What did it look like at the end when they took the fruit and ate of it? Right? What was sin when it was finished like? Separated from God, outside the garden, the cursed world, right? Sin when it's finished brings forth what? Death. Is that consistent? Is it always? Do you think you'll be the exception? No, I don't think you will, right? Same when it's finished. Okay, what about David and Bathsheba? Do you think Bathsheba was an attractive woman? I would suspect that she was a very beautiful woman. Sin at the beginning always looks lovely. If it didn't, it wouldn't have any enticement on us whatsoever. But let's ask David the question. Okay, David, was it worth it all? How did it go with you, David? What was sin when it's finished like, David? Oh, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of death. Wasn't there a lot of death? Okay, you want to see sin, I'll tell you where to see sin when it's finished. I want you to go with me to a place outside the city walls of Jerusalem. A place called the place of the skull. I want you to see somebody suspended there between heaven and earth. Bloody, bruised, back like a plowed field. I want you to see him hanging there. And I want you to think with me, sin when it's finished. What does it look like? That's what it looks like. Jesus hanging on Calvary. That's what your sin looks like when it's finished. My sin looks like when it's finished. You see, our problem is, and I, this is for all of us, that we tend to only see sin 
at the beginning. And it always looks good. And it would radically transform every one of us and every one of our decisions if when I was confronted with sin, instead of seeing sin at the beginning, I looked and saw it when it was finished. Maybe that's what we need to do, bring the cross right into it. Because it'll make us think long and hard about sinning, won't it? So, the wonderful thing is, from 12 years of age, you reach manhood, biblically. Okay? Which means, you've got a lot of years to serve the Lord. But being conscious of the seriousness of sin and how ruinous it is, would be very helpful for you to keep in mind. Because you see, I've known people who started off like a rocket. I mean, just started wonderfully, but their ministry and service is over. Because they never took seriously sin when it's finished. And they thought that they might be the exception to the rule. And that they could sin and they would somehow miss the consequences. But it didn't work that way. And, it, and I know there's grace and I know there's forgiveness. And, I'm not, I'm not, and David was restored. Praise God that he was restored. But boy, there was an awful lot of scars along the way, wasn't there? And so we just need to say, God... I want all of you to start well. And to start well, start soon. Like 12, right? But I want you to finish well. Starting well, that's one thing. It's a good thing. Finishing well is another good thing. Now, just turn with me. Sorry, I said I was done, but I'm not really. I am now. This is going to be the last thing, I think. Psalm 71. I was here last night, but I'm going to... Visit it again. Psalm 71, verse 17 this time. O God, thou hast taught me from my youth. And hitherto have I declared thy wondrous works. So when did the psalmist begin? In his youth, right? God taught him. He declared his wonderful from his youth. Now also, he says, when I'm old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not till I've showed thy strength to this generation and the power to everyone that is to come. And that psalm brings all the generations together. He started in his youth. He's now old and gray-headed. He wants to finish like he started and be fruitful in old age. And that's a well-lived life, isn't it? A life that begins in youth to declare the works of the Lord and finishes old and gray-headed, still declaring the works of the Lord. Wow, what a life. That can be your life, but it's lived out one day at a time by taking the yoke, his yoke, upon you. And that's the best way to live. Yoked to the Lord Jesus Christ. Not unequally yoked to the world, but yoked to the Lord Jesus in harness with him. What a wonderful life. A well-lived life. A wonderful life. But it begins 
to 12. Don't miss it. I don't know what your ages are, but it's getting close for some. Some of us are way past it, but that's another story. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the challenges of the Word of God. Help us, Lord. We're living in a world that's so clouded by false ideas propagated from the father of lies. And some of it affects our thinking. Help us to get our thinking in line with the Word of God. And as a result of our thinking being in line with the Word of God, our lives will then become in line with the Word of God. Because as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We ask your help in these things. Help us to to remember that simple scripture, sin when it's finished. We'll give you the glory in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.